Welcome to Present Value, a new podcast created by students at Cornell University's SC Johnson Graduate School of Management. I'm your host, Michael Brady. We'll be interviewing thought leaders from across the Cornell campus and around the globe about a broad range of topics, anything from the classroom to the boardroom. We're excited to share ideas and insights with curious minds and eager listeners everywhere. This is the first episode in a 10-part season, so subscribe now for more Present Value. We're excited to have the distinguished professor Robert H. Frank as our first guest on Present Value. Bob Frank is the Henrietta Johnson Lewis Professor of Management here at Johnson. He has a regular column in the New York Times, has written over a dozen books, including The Economic Naturalist, In Search of Solutions to Everyday Enigmas, and Success and Luck, The Myth of the Meritocracy. Professor Frank's work also includes The Strategic Role of Emotions, Why the Race for Status is Bad for Society as a Whole, and my personal favorite, The Negative Effects of Studying Economics. Professor Robert Frank, welcome to Present Value. Nice to be with you, Michael. You've coined the term economic naturalist. In fact, your Twitter handle is at economic naturalist. What is economic naturalism? I had a biology course. I think it must have been the 11th grade, maybe the 10th grade. It was uh, taught by a man named Casper Wirtz, uh, one of the best teachers I ever had. But the takeaway from that course was that if you learn just a few simple principles of elementary Darwinian biology, then suddenly you could see things that were invisible to you beforehand. Why do some trees lose their leaves in winter? Why are males in most vertebrate species much larger and more colorful than the the females of the species? All sorts of things that you might not have even noticed now suddenly fell into place with very simple and plausible explanations. And for probably about the last two or three decades, I've been giving that assignment to my students in every econ course I teach. Pose an interesting question, I challenge them and then use absolutely basic economic principles to try to craft a plausible answer to it. Very short, you don't have to have gone at length 500 words maximum. And I think that's, in the end, proven to be the very most effective teaching device I've ever come up with. People come back to me and talk at reunion time years later and and want to tell me about the interesting questions they've come up with in the years since they left Cornell. It's a striking contrast between what you see in the typical economics instruction where, where we give these courses. We have thousands of topics on the syllabus. People go away bewildered. They don't really remember anything. Six months later, they take tests that probe their, their knowledge of basic economic principles, and they don't do any better than students who never even took an economics course. So yeah, it, it's, it's a, it was a real eye-opener to me. Would you say it was looking through the lens of Darwin that really illuminated the world of economics to you, or was it something else that made you make that connection? Well, it was it was really just the idea that a simple theory could explain things that you see in the world. Actually, it turns out there are many deep connections between Darwinian thinking and economic thinking. Darwin was, I think, perhaps the greatest student of the effects of competition who's ever lived, and I include Adam Smith in that set. Uh, he, he really did, did see much more clearly than Smith that competition often produces great benefits in almost every case for individuals, but many cases for the groups that individuals belong to, but not in every case. Oftentimes, competition promotes the interests of the individual, Darwin saw clearly, but runs counter to the interests of the groups that we belong to. 
In the introduction that I gave, I referenced your research about the negative effects of studying economics. What was that research, and how did you show these negative effects? This refers to a series of studies that Tom Gilovich and Dennis Regan, both professors in psychology here at Cornell, did to see whether people would cooperate in one-shot prisoners' dilemmas. Those are social dilemmas in which it's in each individual's interest to cheat, but if no one cheats, everybody does better than if, than if they all cheat. And what we found was that people in general were pretty cooperative with one another in these situations. If they could talk to one another for 30 minutes, most people would cooperate with their partners. In fact, about three quarters of people did. A quarter of them, however, cheated. Uh, we kept track of what people were studying in our experiments, and it turned out that the people majoring in economics were much, much more likely to cheat in these social dilemmas than people who were not majoring in economics. The longer they had been an economics major, the more likely they were to cheat relative to the others. And there was some indication that it was a training effect rather than just a selection effect. The students in one introductory economics class were much more likely to respond cynically to questions about honestly at the end of the term than they had been at the beginning of the term in comparison with a control class of astronomy students who were given the same questions to respond to. So, so yeah, I think if, if you teach your students that people are selfish, that they'll do whatever is in their own interest without regard to what, what would be best for all, then they're more likely to expect others to behave that way. And the one thing we know for sure is that if you think your partner is going to cheat you, you're going to cheat first. Nobody wants to be a chump. So I think we need to, in our teaching of economics, just be more open to the possibility that not everyone is a cheater. In fact, three quarters of the people in our sample were not cheaters. You've shared in the past that you've had a couple of near-death experiences. Do you consider yourself a lucky guy or just someone who notices his luck? <laughs> Uh, the, the theme of my most recent book, uh, which you mentioned in your introduction, uh, it's called Success and Luck. One of the themes in it is that people, especially successful people, tend not to notice the extent to which chance events influence the trajectories of their lives. I think that's true because chance events often influence us in very subtle ways. If you're hit over the head hard enough by a chance event, you will notice it. And I think I've, I've noticed the role of chance in my own life just because I've been hit over the head so hard with it so many times that I would have to be you know, grossly deficient not to have noticed. In, in a certain way, uh, yes, I'm lucky to be alive. Uh, you could point out, well, I was unlucky almost to have died on, on many occasions. So yeah, it's a, it's a question of how you want to frame events in many cases. I think in general, it's probably in your interest to be as optimistic as you can, subject to reality constraints imposed by the world around you. If you take glass half full as your view, that's probably better than looking at things as if it's glass half empty. Sure. And along with that, I know you've commented on in the past that people don't tend to notice their luck in the sense that, you know, if you have a tailwind, uh, you don't notice the tailwind. But if you have a headwind as you're riding, you, you uh, absolutely notice that headwind for the entire way. Is there something we can do to get people to notice the tailwind? Yeah, that, that's really uh, drawing on work from my friend and colleague, Tom Gilovich, a psychologist here at Cornell. And I think it's the easiest way to see why people tend to forget the things that push them along and, and remember keenly the things that they had to overcome in the way of obstacles. 
the example Tom uses is to imagine that you're riding a bicycle in a, into a 20-mile-an-hour headwind. You're keenly aware of it every foot you go. You're battling the wind. It's a nuisance. You have to work hard to overcome the resistance of it. Then the course changes direction. You've got the wind at your back. You feel wonderful with the wind pushing you along. But that feeling lasts maybe 10 seconds, 15 seconds, uh, and then suddenly it's completely out of your awareness. It's helping you, but since you don't have to do anything, you don't, you're not even aware that it's helping you. And I think when, when successful people look back and, and try to construct a cogent narrative, uh, how did I get here, they remember all the tough obstacles they had to overcome, the, the tough opponents they had to vanquish. They don't remember the things that helped them along, the teacher in the 11th grade that steered them away from trouble, the the colleague who had to turn down a promotion that you got because he had to stay and care for an ailing parent. Those sorts of things aren't as readily retrievable in memory. And so I think when, when people ask themselves, why am I successful? Well, most of the people who are successful did work hard. They were talented. And they did overcome obstacles, and so that's the core of their narrative. The the little things that help them, which are always part of the, the narrative, in fact, uh, often just don't break through into consciousness. You were the chief economist of the Civil Aeronautics Board from 1978 to 1980. You've written about a decision that you were involved with that invited criticism from Ralph Nader. Can you tell us about the decision and the criticism? Sure. Uh, This had to do with what happens when too many people show up for a flight that's about to leave. It's always been true that we allow airlines to overbook, and actually that's a good thing to permit because since people often don't show up to claim the seats that they've booked, planes would go out with many more empty seats if we didn't permit carriers to book uh, more reservations than there are available seats on the plane. And most of the time, there's no problem. There are enough seats for everybody. But occasionally, of course, too many people do show up. And then the question is, who gets to go and who has to stay behind? The traditional way of resolving that problem was that it was first come, first served. That method is easy to administer, but it takes no account whatsoever of how desperate you are to get where you're trying to get to. Some people are on vacation. They've got a novel they're reading. They're going to continue reading it once they they land. They might as well wait an extra hour for the next flight as, as go on. But there's someone else who's rushing to to make contact with a, a, an ailing parent, uh, time's limited. If they don't get there now, maybe the parent will expire before they have a chance for a last meeting. And so because first come, first serve doesn't take any account of those differences, uh, we proposed, uh, we the staff at the agency, proposed a different procedure, which was that the carriers had to offer uh, an inducement for volunteers to step forward and give up their seats. It was either a free ticket or a cash compensation payment or some other other benefit that would get people to volunteer. And if not enough volunteers did step forward, they would have to offer a more generous uh, compensation payment. This was a system that we felt was efficient and fair. 
no one would be required to to wait behind for the next available flight if you thought the compensation payment was sufficient to to make up for whatever inconvenience waiting would entail uh, you you came out ahead if you accepted it if you didn't think it was enough you you stayed on the plane you claimed your seat you got to go just as you'd planned we were all set to go with this regulation uh, but before any re- regulation can take effect at the federal level you have to have a comment period and not a, even a day passed, but we got an angry brief from Aviation Consumer Action Project. This was a, a so-called consumer protection group uh, founded by Ralph Nader's organization. It, its purpose uh, was to protect air travelers from being exploited by powerful firms. Uh, their their objection was if we adopted this new procedure. Once again, it would be the poor who would be inconvenienced. They would have to wait. It would be the, the, the rich who got to go merrily along their way. And some on the board were, were moved by that objection and, and considered not implementing the procedure. But the economists on the staff argued that that objection really wasn't cogent. Uh, suppose you're a poor person who decided that a $400 payment was uh, more than enough to compensate you for whatever you'd be giving up by waiting for the next available flight. And then Ralph Nader rushes up with an injunction saying, no, you can't accept that payment. Your your response quite naturally would be, how are you helping me, Ralph? I, I wanted the payment. You're, you're saying, no, I can't accept that pay- payment in, in return for a weight that I don't regard as all that burdensome. Sure. Once you have this option, it's like not having it then seems like you're taking $400 exactly. from someone right out exactly. of their hands. Yeah. yeah, which is one of the, the great truths of human nature. If we have it, we don't want anybody to take it from us. If we don't have it, we're not willing to work that hard to get it. In your recent New York Times column, you explain why single-payer healthcare is more efficient than our current healthcare system. Can you take us through the inefficiencies that single-payer corrects? Is efficiency all that matters? For a long time, the U.S. has relied mainly on private insurance provided mostly by employers. Uh, no other country provides health insurance that way. Uh, in general, it's a very flawed approach to providing health care for the population. The reason we had that approach was that During World War II, there were severe labor shortages. There was also a cap on wages that firms were allowed to pay. What was not capped was uh, the fringe benefits that firms could offer. And so firms that were desperate to recruit new workers offered free, I'll put that in air quotes, free health insurance for employees. Of course, that's a nice benefit, and it was a very effective recruiting device. Other firms were forced to match that offer, and pretty soon most of the population had employer-provided health insurance. That's not a not the worst possible system because uh, in order to be eligible as an insurance company to participate in that system, you had to agree to insure all of the company's employees under the same contract at the same price. Whether or not they had pre-existing illnesses uh, was was not something you could take into account. The problem with pre-existing conditions is that if you're in an open insurance market and the insurance company has a means of discovering whether you have a condition, they don't want you as a customer. If they're forced to take you, they will say, yes, we'll insure you, but, but you'll have to pay so much for insurance that most people couldn't even begin to afford it. That's the so-called adverse selection problem. Employer-provided insurance solved that problem uh, to a certain extent, but 
the side effects were that it, it, it bound you to your employer. If you had a condition and then you, you quit your job, there, it was very difficult to get insurance going forward. What the Affordable Care Act did was that it, it tried to make a transition that took employer-provided insurance as the status quo. People had it. They said they were satisfied with it for the most part. If you tried to take that away from them and give them the kind of health insurance that most other countries have, which is uh, some variant on the single-payer approach, uh, they would have rebelled. It would have been politically unsustainable. At least that was the judgment of the legislators who crafted the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act had three main pillars. It said you have to offer insurance at the same rates to everybody, with whether or not they have pre-existing conditions. You have to provide subsidies to people who can't afford insurance, and you have to require people to buy insurance. You can't require people to buy insurance unless you're prepared to subsidize people who couldn't otherwise afford it, and unless you required firms to offer insurance at the same rates to everybody, irrespective of whether they had pre-existing conditions, then uh, firms would cherry-pick and try to exclude people with conditions that were costly to cover. So. You had to have each of those three positions in place if you wanted to have a system that would insure everybody or at least had, had a prospect of insuring everybody at a price that people uh, could actually pay. So the preferred option and what we would have done if we didn't have the commitment on the table uh, uh, that, that led people to favor sticking with their existing employer-provided insurance would have been just to have something roughly equivalent to Medicare for all. You go to the doctor, uh, the bill goes to the uh, government, who then reimburses the doctor and the hospital for, for whatever services that you've received. That system's good because there's just no uh, arguing about whether uh, pre-existing conditions are covered. They're just covered. Uh, there's no issue of huge administrative and marketing expenses uh, to recruit people to buy your insurance rather than arrivals. Uh, the, the Medicare system spends about 2% of its budget on administrative costs. That's uh, compared to 16 or 17% for the typical private insurance contract. The main savings, though, with single payer is that if you have a big agency like a government negotiating with the service providers themselves and the drug companies, you can get much more favorable rates uh, for those services than you can if it's just a, a bilateral transaction between the patient and, and the provider. Uh, our costs here for an appendectomy are like five times as much as the average cost for the same service in OECD countries overall. It's, it's, a, it's a huge increase in expenditure in our system that other systems don't face. A criticism might be that, oh, well, Professor Frank, wouldn't the costs on the books of particular operations rise and rise because the government's footing the bill? But you're saying in reality, the government actually has more negotiating power because it's one entity rather than the fragmented, exactly. current fragmented market. Yeah. And the, and the proof of that lies in the comparison between the prices we pay here when insurance companies are footing the bill and the prices for those exact same services in other places. Uh, you know, how much does a doctor need? That's a very socially determined question. If you're a doctor, you can be happy if you're earning what other doctors are making. Uh, if you're a professor, that's true too. If you're a mechanic, that's true. In other countries, doctors don't earn as much as here. But if you look at the data on how they feel about their jobs, uh, most of them are quite happy. 
they're earning half or a third of what doctors here earn, but they're quite happy. They're, they're performing a valuable public service. They're seen as people of, of high esteem in the community, uh, and they live quite comfortably. If all the other drivers of Ferraris uh, in your circle, uh, uh, if the doctors can afford them, then you feel you need one too. But that's not something that's inherent in the human condition. You need what other people like you have. On the patient side, in a single-payer system, do you see patients being more inclined to use more care than they otherwise would? Yeah, I think that's something that we need to focus on. Oftentimes, decisions about care have a a certain arbitrary element to them. Do you need 10 days in the hospital after your appendix is removed, or would three days uh, be enough, or maybe even 24 hours? The decision people make about that depends on how much they have to pay for it, and it also depends on what the medical professionals have to say about the consequences of leaving after one day or three days or 10 days. And implementing features in the system that encourage people and practitioners to take costs into account when they make decisions like that would be a good thing. And the Affordable Care Act, in fact, has many such provisions, and medical costs have come down sharply relative to their trend rates of increase since those provisions were enacted. Do you see any way that fixing these inefficiencies today maybe sacrifices the potential for more care at lower costs in the future? Like, do the insurance companies now do anything to offer more plans to patients and drive the costs of those down? Or is their negotiating power just not enough and they're raising the cost? You know, it would have been interesting to see how the Affordable Care Act would have played out. the the data that we have suggests that the the best model for providing care is the large nonprofit clinic. Uh, the the examples that got the most attention were the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, Kaiser Permanente. There, the model is that doctors are on salary. They don't get paid more when they order more tests and procedures. Uh, they, they work in teams. They share all the patient's data. And so there's a very coordinated effort to treat the whole patient, not just the patient who's complaining about one set of symptoms. And the, the data suggests that patients are more satisfied with their care when they're treated in, in facilities like those. The costs are quite significantly lower. The doctors don't earn nearly as much, and yet qualified doctors are quick to accept positions in those practices because uh, their their aim is to help heal people, not to, to get rich. So I think if we had let the affordable care play out, my prediction would have been that we would see those plans gradually displacing other plans, and, and they have every incentive to provide care on efficient terms. They already are doing that. So whether we are forced, uh, in order to stabilize the system, to move more quickly to a single-payer system, uh, I don't know. We won't, we won't see the natural results of that experiment if we do that, but moving to single-payer would be a very good outcome if we could do that. And what are your thoughts on reshaping healthcare to look more like that of car insurance? For example, people pay full prices for oil changes in tires, but not if their car is in a severe accident. Is there anything compelling about this model? There, there's a famous study uh, in which uh, two groups were compared. One had first dollar coverage. That means they didn't pay for anything in the medical domain. The other group had full coverage, but with a $1,200 deductible. That meant 
that the first $1,200 in expenses that they incurred during a year would be out of their own pockets. The summary finding of that study was that the health outcomes for the two groups were the same, but that people in the group that had the $1,200 deductible provision in their coverage spent about half as much on medical care as the other group. The only thing that makes thoughtful policymakers reluctant to rely too heavily on that finding is the knowledge that low-income families will forego essential care if they have to pay out of pocket. And we don't want the children, especially of those families, to be denied care because people have very powerful incentives to spend an extra dollar on something else just because they're so poor. Now, you could say we could give cash grants to low-income families that would make that less of a problem, but uh, that's, that's still a concern. I think the best compromise, in my view, would be to have families whose incomes were below a certain threshold get first dollar coverage and families whose incomes were above that threshold face gradually larger deductible amounts. And when it comes to thinking about policy decisions, you've taken a very clear stance on single-payer health care. Are you ever concerned that your political beliefs inform your economics, or are you confident that your understanding of economics informs your politics? Uh, of course, we're all influenced in so many unconscious ways by things we believe to be true. When people ask me where I fall on the political spectrum, I'm pleased if they have to ask that question. Oftentimes people don't know because many of the policies I favor are associated with conservatives. Others are strongly associated with people on the left. I like to describe myself as a radical pragmatist. It's an oxymoronic sounding term. But I'd like to think, and I may be naive to, to think this, but that my views are influenced first and foremost by what I think works. I think the strongly progressive taxes I favor are influenced not by a left-wing view that rich people are evil or exploitative, although maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I, I favor progressive taxes because uh, the, the degree of inequality that the market serves up uh, encourages us to spend our money in profoundly wasteful ways. The, the average wedding in the United States now costs $31,000. In real terms, that's uh, up from $10,000 in 1980. The reason it's gone up is that other people are spending more, so people feel they need to spend more or else feel vulnerable to the charge. What's the matter? They didn't understand what an important occasion this was. Uh, there's no evidence that everybody spending three times as much on a wedding makes anybody any happier. Uh, in fact, there's a recent paper showing that the couples who spent more than $20,000 on their wedding were 12% more likely to divorce each year than those who had spent between five and 10000 on their wedding. And it's the same across the board. If we all spend 10% more making our mansions bigger, the effect of that is merely to raise the bar that defines adequate for mansions. Other people have bigger ones, we need bigger ones. Uh, that's money that could be much better spent in other ways. I'll have to vividly remember this conversation when I'm thinking about walking down the aisle and, uh, and, and house shopping. <laughs> have you ever been surprised or taken aback by a particular piece of criticism? Or maybe there's been something that was so well articulated, a challenge that made you change your mind? My most recent New York Times column uh, tried to make the point that the proposed tax cuts for top earners would be bad even for top earners. 
I think the conventional wisdom is that top earners are the driving force behind these tax cut proposals. One uh, representative said he got a call from a donor uh, telling him, if you don't get this done, don't bother calling anymore for donations. The people at the top, I think, naturally believe that if they had more money, they'd be able to buy more of what they want. How could that not be true? The fact is, though, that there's good evidence that that's just a cognitive error. The people at the top, uh, without any question, have everything they might reasonably be said to need. They want to buy more of what they want. What do they want? Well, they want what we all want. We want something special. You're not a bad person if you want something special. It's quite natural to to think bigger is better or faster is better or more calories is better. But, But those feelings are unmindful of the idea that special is just a relative concept. What's a special house? It's one that's nicer than other houses. What's a a special car? It's one that performs better than most other ones. And there's just only so much special to be had. Not everyone can be in the top 10%. In fact, only 10% can be in the top 10%. And so if we, if we give people at the top more money, which is what we may be poised to do, they will spend more money in an attempt to buy more special things, but the supply of special won't be expanded by our doing that. They won't end up any, any happier than before with what they personally own. Uh, the bar will shift accordingly and in every dimension, uh, leaving them no more happy with the things they buy than before. If they wanted a penthouse apartment with a view of Central Park, well, there are only so many of those, and they will go to the same people no matter whether everybody gets a tax cut at the top or not. So the thought experiment that I I used to illustrate why they'd actually be worse off, uh, that, that argument so far just says they won't be any better off, the tax cut makes resources unavailable to the government to do the kinds of things that governments and only governments can do well. So here's, here's the thought experiment I posed. Which world would you rather live in? One where you drove a Ferrari Berlinetta, that's a car that costs $320,000. You drive it on a road like our roads, riddled everywhere with foot-deep potholes. That's the world we have. Or, or would you prefer to live in a world where if you were wealthy and you cared about cars, you would instead drive a Porsche 911 Turbo on well-maintained roads? Uh, The extra revenue from the higher taxes in the second world is what funds the effort to maintain the roads to a higher standard. That's a completely easy question to answer. Nobody would argue with a straight face, oh, I'd rather drive my Ferrari on bad roads than my Porsche on good roads. So, you know, I've gotten lots of angry commentary about that column. One person wrote to say, so at Cornell... Are the MBA students being taught to settle for second best? And I was puzzled by the criticism. In the end, I replied, well, if you really believe that driving a Ferrari on pothole-ridden roads would be better than driving a Porsche on smooth ones, then yes, we're encouraging the MBA students to settle for second best. But the premise is completely unsupported. A Porsche on smooth roads is not second best. That's a clearly better outcome than a Ferrari on crappy roads. And I'm sure you got plenty of criticism from Ferrari purists who (laughs) (laughs) complained that the Porsche wasn't as good of a car. Another common criticism 
is that uh, don't I know that governments waste our money? If, sure, it would be great if we paid more taxes and they did something useful with it, but they'll just waste it. And you can cite vivid examples of ways in which government does waste money. But the private sector wastes money too. You know, spending three times as much as before on a wedding, that's pretty wasteful. So the question is, should we have a government that doesn't waste money? Yes, of course we should. How do you get a government like that? It's hard. You have to work hard to build a government like that. Can it be done? Yes. Uh, but skeptics said, no, governments are always going to waste money. Well, have you vid- visited Norway? Have you visited New Zealand? Have you ever been to Canada? There are countries that have managed to build pretty good governments. The, the citizens in those countries year after year say, uh, we think our officials are non-corrupt. We, we think they spend our tax dollars wisely. People in the U.S. don't say that. We have not built as good a government as we should have built. Healthcare and taxes are seemingly intractable problems. They're, they're just so big. Where does the confidence come from to put yourself out there and expose yourself to criticism, you know, having a column out there on the New York Times on these issues of such enormous complexity? Yeah, you you go where the arguments take you, and it's fun to engage. You know, I, I enjoy going back and forth with these people. If you ask the right questions, then it's possible for people to change their minds. And, and it doesn't always happen quickly. I, I like to cite the example of acid rain. When I first came to Ithaca uh, many, many years ago, all we read about in the paper was acid rain. It was killing the fish in the lakes in the Adirondacks. It was killing the forests. Economists, since a decade before we were reading those articles, had been proposing a solution to acid rain, which was to charge companies in the Midwest a permit fee if they wanted to discharge SO2 into the atmosphere. That was the cause of acid rain. People were burning high sulfur coal in the Midwest. It was spewing SO2 out the stacks. It was blowing eastward. It precipitated over our territory as H2SO4, sulfuric acid, and was causing all this damage. Why were they doing that? It was not because they enjoyed doing that. It was because it was cheaper to do that than to filter it out. And economists said, well, charge them for doing it, and they'll figure out cheap ways to filter it out. There were angry complaints, much like the ones I get in response to my, oh, these economists, they're immoral. They want to let rich firms pay to pollute to their heart's content, as if to say somehow the reason firms are polluting is that they derive pleasure from doing it. The real reason, of course, is that it's cheaper to do it. Finally, 30 years later, 1995, we incorporated uh, a provision for permit markets in SO2 uh, under the Clean Air Act amendments. And within a very short window of time, no more articles about acid rain. The problem was just solved. Prices can steer people to more efficient ways of doing things, but it doesn't happen overnight. You have to get down in the trenches. It was one intern at a time taking Econ 101 and going to work for a congressman or woman and sort of patiently explaining why it was a good idea. It wasn't a plot to enrich or to make polluting firms happier. It was just a way to give them an incentive not to pollute. You've mentioned to me that you're thinking about writing a new book. Can you share some of your ideas with our listeners? It's a a book that I've tentatively decided to call Context. That probably won't be the name of it. I've I've never had a publisher who let me call a book what I thought it ought to be called, but but I'm going to call it Context. 
until I'm forced to abandon that. I think the easiest uh, example to illustrate the basic idea of it, which is that external circumstances shape our behavior far more than we're aware of. I think we have the illusion that we're captains of our own uh, destinies. In fact, well, the psychologists have a saying, it's the situation, not the person. Uh, If you try to explain why somebody does what he does, our tendency is to look for personality factors. Oh, he did that because he was a certain kind of person. Uh, much more common, uh, the, the correct answer is he did that because of the kind of situation he found himself in. I think the example I like to offer of how strong this effect can be is that I have four adult sons, and none of them is a smoker. I once told a friend that if they'd grown up when I did, at least two of them would be smokers. And one of my sons, who happened to be present during that conversation, asked me, well, which two? And I said, well, I thought David would be a smoker and, and Hayden would be a smoker. Well, what about me? Uh, no, I didn't think he would be. Yeah, and he argued, yes, of course, if he'd grown up when I grew up, he'd be a smoker too. When I grew up, I started smoking at 14. Uh, many of my friends had been smoking already for a couple of years. By then, both of my parents smoked. 65% of men in America smoked. It was not at all weird for me to start smoking at that age. It was strange not to be a smoker in that environment. If you want to predict whether someone's going to be a smoker, the very most important thing you could know would be how many of the people in that person's peer group are smokers. If 25% of the people smoke, then a 20% increase in in the number of people who smoke in the peer group makes you 20% more likely to smoke yourself. It's an enormously powerful effect. And so if we want to raise our kids to be non-smokers, and I think most of us probably want that if we have have kids. I, I've never heard a parent say, oh, I'm really hoping my kid will grow up to be a smoker. What a bizarre thing that would be for a parent to say something like that. If you want your kid to grow up to be a smoker, the very most important thing is to raise your kid in an environment where most people don't smoke. And that's the kind of environment we have now. 20% of men in America smoke. My kids don't smoke, and I'm delighted that they don't smoke. It would have been much harder to achieve that result if they'd grown up in the environment I did. And the reason they didn't is that we took purposeful steps to change the environment. And that's true in almost every domain of life. The environment affects us, often in ways we don't appreciate. And what we do in response to the environment in turn shapes the environment. And we almost never take any account of what we do has in terms of its effects on the environment that shapes us. And we could get much better outcomes if we took more account of that. So it seems like this view is maybe directed towards thinking about policies that address the situation and the environment rather than just the agency of the individual. Right. Yeah. I think right now we justify the draconian uh, penalties we impose on smoking. The, you know, When I was a kid, I could buy a pack of camels for 25 cents. Now it's 10 or $11. That's the main reason the smoking rate has fallen so much uh, between when I grew up and, and today. Uh, we ban smoking in restaurants and in buildings and so on. Those steps we take in the name of preventing harm to others caused by secondhand smoke. So I smoke and I exhale and you breathe the smoke 
that I exhale. That's exposure to secondhand smoke. Secondhand smoke is a almost negligible problem in terms of health outcomes, unless you work in a bar with no ventilation for eight hours a day and everybody's smoking in the bar, then, then maybe. But in, in normal life, secondhand smoke just doesn't matter. The harm you cause to others if you're a smoker is that every person you know uh, and every person that person knows, now, now there's one extra person in the peer group, the relevant peer group, who's a smoker. And that means other people are more likely to smoke. And that means others who know them are more likely to smoke. And the damage caused by smoking to people if they smoke is so big that the kind of taxes we impose, the kind of regulations we impose are thoroughly reasonable as a response to harms of that magnitude. Even a a dedicated libertarian would say, well, you can rein the individual in if failure to do so would result in sufficient harm to others. You have to be really unreasonable not to embrace that idea. And I think that's the avenue to defend the steps we've taken to, to deter smoking. Do you worry at all that that view is expansionary in the sense that, you know, 51% of people then get to define a new a new way in which, you know, social action contributes to harm for the 51%? Libertarians would say that, hey, John Stuart Mill comes back into memory here. It's the tyranny of the majority all over again. Do you see that as a risk at all? Yeah. Or? Yes, I do th- see that as a risk. One thing I've tried to do over the years in my teaching is to stress that just to, to identify an outcome as imperfect doesn't mean that any old intervention will result in something better. Every country re- regulates workplace safety, but some of the safety regulations we've adopted probably on balance cause more harm than good. So yeah, you, you have to be mindful of the fact that the market's imperfect. Individual decisions often lead to, to outcomes that we didn't anticipate or, or desire. But so, too, are collective interventions imperfect. And so always it's a practical test. Is the best we can do if we intervene going to be better than what what will happen if we don't do anything? That's a question we need to take seriously. Yeah, so I think regulators need to be humble. If you arm people with an argument that says, yeah, we can regulate this, that, or whatever whatever else we want, there's a genuine risk that that will be taken beyond the point where it should be. Is there anything that inspired you to write this book about context now, or is this just kind of the next step in your academic evolution? You know, I've I've kind of run out of ideas, and so so really, it's just a, a, a way of figuring out predicates for trying to express the same ideas that I've tried to express in the past more clearly and more persuasively. Yeah, I think there's an element in many of my my books that's repetitive of ideas that I was excited about when I was in my 30s and 40s. And, you know, in in defense of that, I'll say that, again, that it often takes a long time for ideas to filter out. And uh, (laughs) I've been trying to change the world for a long time and haven't succeeded yet. And so uh, I'm going to keep at some of the, the notes I've tried to strike so far. You've spent some time in the Peace Corps in Nepal. Can you tell us about that experience? How old were you? Why did you decide to join the Peace Corps? Uh, I was fresh out of college when I went to Nepal. I had been a teacher my senior year in college. They were shorthanded, and so I got to teach a freshman math course. Before doing that, I think I imagined my future as a company president someday. That was what ambitious 
young men in my circle imagined would happen to them uh, back then. When I taught that course, I so enjoyed it, and I thought, well, maybe I should think about being a teacher. I had been a math major and, and uh, did not feel that I wanted to get a Ph.D. in math. Math is really hard, and I, I didn't think I was good enough to achieve much in that domain. I needed to buy time, uh, and the Peace Corps bought time. I, I would get a chance to teach. I was a teacher in the Peace Corps. Like many Peace Corps volunteers in that day, I got interested in development economics, and so I decided, why? While I was in the Peace Corps to read about economics, and I took the GREs and applied and was accepted to a PhD program in economics. I, I ended up not majoring in development economics because Berkeley didn't have a good program in that at that time. But economics was a good choice for me. It really did fit the way I, I tend naturally to think about things. And so I felt fortunate that that path opened up to me, you know, largely uh, on the strength of a few chance events, but it was it was a good path for me. The the main takeaway from the experience of living in what was then and still is one of the poorest countries in the world was that after 48 hours, the the stark differences in material living standards between Nepal and the U.S. completely vanished from view. I lived in a two-room house that didn't have any electricity or plumbing. At no time during the two years I lived in that house did it in any way seem inadequate to me. It did everything a house needed to do. I had friends over. I was ne never uh, ashamed to receive people in that space. If I lived in a house like that here, my kids wouldn't want their friends to know where we lived. Uh, they would be ashamed, and, and, I, and I would be ashamed. And I think you can know intellectually, the sociologists have long known that that context shapes how we evaluate things. But I think until you experience life in that way, at least in my case, I didn't know that at a, at a deep level. And I think knowing that simple aspect of life at a deep level uh, was a profound influence on everything I've thought about and written about in the years since. Can you tell us about a failure you've experienced or a regret? Yeah, I, I think the thing that makes me saddest looking back over my career is that as a matter of circumstance, I tumbled onto uh, some insights about why markets fail early in my career. I wrote a book about these insights. It was published in 1985. It was called Choosing the Right Pond. I felt like that book, which came out in January, was going to set the world on a different course. I, I thought, well, it won't happen right away, but maybe by September or October, there would be bills working their way through the House and Senate, taking advantage of the insights I had laid out in that book, why different forms of, of taxation would make everybody better off, why different forms of regulation would uh, lead to better outcomes for everyone. There have been many years that have passed since that book. Uh, almost nothing uh, of the sort I envisioned happening has happened. And the simplest example is the one I recounted early. Why can't we see that if we who have been economically successful paid more in tax and had better public goods in the mix with the private goods we consume, the private goods would be in absolute terms slightly less elaborate than they are now, but the public goods, which are really quite shabby in the current environment, would be so much better that the net effect would be a huge plus. Nobody takes issue with any of the basic premises of that argument. 
Does context shape our evaluations of the houses we buy and the cars we drive, the wedding celebrations we stage for our kids? Uh, Nobody answers no to that question. Does that mean we will escalate our expenditures in mutually offsetting ways, just like happens in a military arms race? Everybody immediately concedes that that's what the consequence of that simple fact about the world will be. And doesn't it then follow that if we all at the top paid a little bit more in tax and spent more on public goods, we would all be happier? Yes. Nobody takes any issue with any of the premises of that argument, and yet here we are doing none of of the things implied by it. Why hasn't that agenda been more widely discussed and adopted? I think, you know, basically I attribute that to a a failure on my part. You know, why couldn't I have rallied support for those ideas more effectively? I'm not sure why I failed. Probably I didn't work hard enough. Professor Frank, we have to know, Dylan or Clapton? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, I, I'm in a, in a way glad to be retiring after another couple of years because, you know, I, they, they were the two I could reliably count on over, over the years that would be performers that my students knew and that I knew and we could all get engaged in a conversation about uh, now more and more of the students who come in today are, are not really familiar with the works of Dylan and Clapton. And so, yes, I, I could branch out to my sons or musicians. I can consult with them and get new examples, but uh, it wouldn't be as much fun for me. I, I think they're both terrific. Dylan got the Nobel Prize, and I think in the fullness of time will be seen as the one who had far greater impact, but I'm loath to say anything at all bad about Eric Clapton. Robert Frank, thanks for joining us on Present Value. It was an excellent conversation. A pleasure, Michael. Thanks for listening to the inaugural episode of Present Value. Check out presentvaluepodcast.com to subscribe or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked what you heard, share the podcast and tell a friend about it. Next time on Present Value, we interview Professor Risa Mish and get her take on applying critical thinking skills to land your dream job. The Present Value podcast is an independent editorial project produced by students at the SC Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Caroline Wright, Chris Alberico, and Harrison Job, who is also our editor. I'm your host, Michael Brady. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz, music by Poddington Bear, and special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.